I invite you to turn to your Bibles, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and we'll continue our road through Romans. I believe we're up to verse 13 this morning. Verse 13. And invite you to read along in your copy of the word as I read aloud. And see what Paul is trying to say through the faith of Abraham. I have a question before you this morning first. What's in a name? We don't think much of names really these days. In other words, can you give me a show of hands of who in the room knows the meaning of their name? A few, not many. It's a, it's a minority. And in our culture, it's not really a thing that we are big on. I have two sons, as you know, Griffith. When we chose our boys' names, we did look at the meaning. And Griffith uh, meant um, uh, uh, something warrior. Um, strong. Thank you. That's it. <laughs> strong warrior. All right, and so when the second one came, we were looking at names again, and um, Freddie actually just came out of the blue. Um, if I tell you how I came to know, name my, fun, uh, my son Freddie, then um, you'd probably no longer want me to be your pastor, actually. But uh, Freddie, Freddie, uh, isn't that a hawk? Now, please don't be thinking that for the whole sermon now, okay? I wonder why he named himself Freddy. But Freddy, it means peaceful ruler. And I thought, oh, that'll be good. That'll be balance out Griff. And there'll be one, you know, one peaceful, one strong. And it'll be a good balance, right? But when we say each other's names, for instance, Peter, oh, probably an easy one, even though I don't really know what Peter means still, um, I don't really say, oh, Peter, yeah, I know what that means. What does that mean, by the way? It's a rock. It's a rock. Yes, of course, Peter the rock. Okay, thank you. That's why I was embarrassed. I knew, I knew it's in the Bible. Okay, Peter. I don't, I don't I automatically associate the meaning of the rock with Peter. It doesn't come to it naturally in our culture. Um, however, I've been reading that it did back in this particular, we'll say, oriental context, particularly when we talk about Abraham, or if you want to say the Jewish way, Abraham, is how they pronounced it back then. You might or might not be aware that Abraham was not his first name. We know throughout the Bible, God changed people's names. He's, he's chosen people a number of times uh, to a number of people. And his first name was Abram. Abram, just Abraham without the H. Abraham. Abraham means um, a, a, a father of many, or something along those lines. Father of many. And so when someone who came across Abraham's path saw him, and, and, and he was most likely a hospitable guy, um, where you know, people traveling pilgrims along the way, their journey, and uh, they come across his house and they'll probably let, him, let them stay and, and small chat begins, how old are you, blah, 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 what's your name, um, how long you've been here, where you're from. And so you say, I'm Abram. 
Abram, oh, that's great. What a great name. How many do you have? And what, what's, what's Abram's, for 86 years, what, what was Abram's response to this? None. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, surely, surely, Abram is thinking this this whole life. I'm the father of many, but I have none. I have none. And it comes to the point where God reveals himself through a promise. We're told this promise in verse 13. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world. He should be the heir of the world. And surely Abraham's thinking, how? I've got no children. I'm 86 years old. Nothing. And so if you're not familiar with that story, please read uh, around Genesis 15, 16, 17, 18, 17, 18 about that area and, and, and review the, the story of Abraham, particularly if you're not familiar with it. But the Lord revealed himself. God revealed himself to Abraham. I'm, I'm just assuming, we don't know for sure, that it was just, a, I don't know, an audible voice coming from the heaven. Um, could have been, I don't know, in a dream. Uh, but I do know that Sarah was listening in our conversation, so Sarah could hear the conversation between God and Abraham. So it had to be something that where um, the surround um, could hear. Or the other predicament could be that Sarah just was... Um, had that revelation as well. Even though, when you read those chapters, you'll see that when God promises something to Abraham, what does Sarah do? Sarah, who's, by the way, his wife, she laughs. Okay? She laughs at that because she's old too. And so there's a few promises in here that uh, Paul revisits, that they, he knows the Jewish People are well aware of who Abraham is. He's the father of the Jews, even though himself wasn't a Jew. Remember? He started the Jewish nation. In order to start something, he wasn't one. God had to make him one. He is what we call a Chaldean Gentile. He's a Gentile, in other words, someone who's not a Jew, but he was, from, he was a Chaldean. And so, if you read the story... The Lord moved him along and promised him descendants, promised he would be the father of many nations, he would be owner of a land, and there was something else that I believe um, he would have been promised. I think he was promised that there would be a redeemer that would take away the sin of the world that would allow Gentiles or the people of many nations to be his descendants. Now, how do I know? Why do I say that? I've read the Bible. Yeah, I've read the Bible. Do you know which part? <laughs> Jesus references it in John chapter 8. And I cannot give you the particular verse off by heart. Maybe 56. Please check with me. 
Jesus himself says, Abraham, Abraham was waiting for this day. Abraham saw this day coming, the day of Jesus Christ coming into the world and taking away the sin of the world. Please give me a nod if I'm correct or not correct. Oh, wow, okay. So John 8, 56. Um, but I'm trying to put myself into Abraham's shoes. And there's some interesting language in this passage where, I don't know, I could probably say I couldn't have been like Abraham was. That's the goal for all of us, to have this faith that Abraham had, but easier said than done, right? So the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. This is the point of the passage. We're going through the, the theme of chapter 4. We're justified. In other words, we are declared righteous before God. We are treated righteous before God, not from what we do, not from obeying the law, but through faith. That's the theme of chapter 4. Paul's reminding them, this promise did not come through Abraham obeying the law. We know that because the law wasn't even in existence then. The law came through Moses later. But it's more than that. It didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So I'll say it again in case you are not firm on it. We are righteous. We are made right before God through faith. Just through belief in Jesus, not through anything that we do. It can't be like that. And we'll get into it. Why? For if they which are of the law be heirs, in other words, if it was, let's just say for instance, Paul's throwing it up in the air, what if Abraham was made righteous through obeying the law? What if? Well, as a result, faith would be made void. It would cancel out faith. And the promise made of none effect. In other words, the, the promise would be made void as well. The promise would be nullified. The promise would be non-existent if it was through the law. Why? Well, the next verse tells us. Because the law brings about wrath. The law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. I'll, I'll quickly read verse 16 too. Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and it may be guaranteed. I've underlined that word guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. So let's go back to verse 15. Why can this promise be made Oh, sorry, I'll repeat that and rephrase it. Why can this promise not be made through Abraham doing something or obeying the law? That's the question. Because the law brings about wrath. The purpose of the law is not to redeem. Now, we've gone through, over through this in Romans. Paul has referenced this before. That the, the purpose of the law is for us to realize that we 
need a saviour. The purpose of the law is for us to realise that we are a sinner, that we're not good in God's eyes, that everything that we do is kind of like, according to the Old Testament, filthy rags. No one's righteous, no, not one. And as a result, it brings about wrath. Why? Because in order for, us, for one to be justified by the law, the requirement, as James references in his book, you have to fulfill, you have to obey every single rule, every single law. You can't pick and choose. Every single law has to be obeyed at all times in your whole entire life. It's pretty much impossible. James says in his book, if you've um, broken the law in just one area, one rule, just one rule, then pretty much you've broken everything. You've gone. It's 100% obeyed or not at all. And so if that's the case, then can it be guaranteed Let's just say Abraham was a one-hit wonder and he did obey every single law. He did, was 100% obedient, even though we know he wasn't. And then for every single descendant to be like that, what are the odds? So in order for Abraham to be promised all these descendants, they would have to obey every single law as well. And therefore, the promise would never be fulfilled. It had to be through faith. Does that make sense? It had to be through faith in order for the promise not to be nullified. And that's an interesting second part of that sentence. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's logical, right? Where there's no law... No transgression. And are we under the law if we put our faith in Jesus? No. So remember, putting our faith in Jesus, he's justified us. He's cleaned our slate, wiped our slate clean. And even if we do break a law, that does not mean that our righteousness goes away. It doesn't even mean that our righteousness decreases because we know our righteousness only has one level. We are either an A+, 100% righteous, or we are 0%, an F, not righteous. Or you could, just say, you could say 100% evil. Not righteous. There's only two possibilities. Please have that in your minds. We cannot be 99% righteous. We cannot be 80%. We cannot be any percent other than 100% righteous. At all times, regardless of what we do, there has to be an important truth that not many people fully grasp or understand. So therefore, it comes by faith, so that it can be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. 
And then here's the good news. Here's the news that he's trying to let the, the people in Rome let, know about. And then the Jews, will, well, they'll be a bit iffy about this. Not only to those who are of the law. In other words, who are of the law? Who were brought under the law? The Jews. So not only to those who are Jewish, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. Do we have the faith of Abraham? It's an interesting one because Jesus wasn't around then yet. But this is what I referenced that John 8.56. He did have faith in the promise of Jesus. And this is what we can say about all the Old Testament saints. All the Old Testament people who were saved, they had faith. Well, as a faith in the coming of a Messiah to save them. And how they did that was um, through offerings and sacrifices. So that last sentence is marvellous. And this helped me realise a Sunday school song that I did not have a clue about when I was singing, actually. I confess. You know the song, Father Abraham has many sons, many sons of Father Abraham, I am one of them and so are you? That did not click. I, I don't know whether, I haven't even had any children ask me, how are we a son of Abraham? Like, no, my dad's over there. And so he's the, he's the father of us all. I wonder what the Jews think about that. <laughs> they don't like it. <laughs> they don't like it at all. Father Abraham is the father of us all who have the faith of Abraham. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. So what did his faith entail? What did he actually believe? Really, what, what does it come down to? The crux of our faith. What is it really? I, I believe it says it all in the latter part of verse 17. He's the God. We have faith in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. The God who gives life to the dead. And we believe that God gave life to Jesus when he was raised from the dead. The God who calls into being things that were not. The God who pretty much can do whatever he wants. He's capable of doing absolutely anything. We just watched the video of creation. One sentence, bam, universe into existence. Obviously, scientists have a hard time believing that because, oh, what, really? Who is your God? And this is our God. He can do anything. He can do anything in your situation right now, too. Just don't think about all the big stuff. Think about what you call small in your own life.
Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping. And so I decided to do a simple English version with this one because this, this confused me where, you know, verse 18 of chapter 4 in my Bible, who against hope believed in hope? There might be something along the lines of, in your version. In other words, when there was no hope, he hoped. When life was in the pits, there was no, no way. And no way, surely, 100 years old, 99 years old, him being promised that he would have many descendants. But God said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. Do you remember what that's talking about? That's referencing that, that's, um, the, the, the encounter from God. He says, go outside, look at the stars, look at the stars, and how, and how many you see, that's how many descendants you will have. I wonder what went through Abraham's mind. Because surely, oh, Sarah's not up for that. <laughs> that's a lot, right? <laughs> surely, there was a revelation a special revelation, an added revelation that said, or that told him, how this was going to come about. But who would it come through? Because he still, he still had to start with someone. And this is what he wrestled with against the Lord. He said, Lord, but I've got no one. Who's he going to go through? All I got is this, Guy I live with, I think he's from Damascus. I forget his name off by heart, but one of his servants. But without losing faith, Abraham, who was nearly 100 years old, took into account his own body. This is what we're talking about, which was as good as dead, right? As good as dead. And Sarah's womb, which was dead. It was impossible for her to have kids. Without losing faith, and this is interesting because if you're familiar with your Abraham story, well, like me, I ask the question, mm, did he, like, did his faith weaken? And this is why I believe it's talking about losing faith. Did he lose his faith by what he did? Verse 20, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. Did he? Did he waver? And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, well, remember the story is, <laughs> Sarah goes to him and says, well, what are we going to do? I know I can't have children. I'm past the age, so how about you have a child with one of my maidservants? One of my servants, she'll be up for it. And that can be the descendant through who all the other descendants will come through. Maybe that's what God's telling us to do. Is this an encounter of doubts going through Abraham? Is it an encounter of him, of his not trusting the Lord? Or is it something else? Could it be that it was his interpretation of what God was telling him to do. 
we kind of do things this ourselves. And this is why I talk about this. This is why I'm bringing up this proposal. This is not, this is just trying to get you thinking, you know. Because this, this to me, I, I struggled with this. Did he, didn't he waver in faith? Uh, what's going on? Is Paul just really speaking up Abraham a lot or, or not? But in fact, his faith grew stronger and in this he brought glory to God. Now ultimately, let's address the white elephant, okay? So let's, let's just think about it. Did he lose faith or not? Or did he waver in faith? And this is the proposal that I have for him to say not is, and this is something that we do ourselves, is that we try to do the Lord's work in our own strength. We try, we, 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 we have the faith that Christ is going to save us. That's John 3.16 is really our faith in a nutshell, is it not? Those who believe in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. Okay. And we have this intention, this, this desire to do the Lord's work. And it could become in many different shapes and forms. Let's not get into that. But how do we go about doing the Lord's work? I don't know about you, but there are times when I've got to guard myself against doing it in my own strength. Saying, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. I've got to make sure I get everything done. And not really allow the time to listen to God and really hear, oh, is that how you want me to go about doing it? I'm getting some nods, so I, 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 I hear, I see some affirmation there. He was still fully convinced in verse 21 that God is able to do whatever he promises. So what will shed some more light in this is this verse found in Galatians. This is a passage in Galatians chapter 4, which is really complex, and we're not going to go into it too much. But just I just picked out this verse in verse 23 that Paul in his letter to the Galatians, uses um, the story, the story of Hagar and, um, or Ishmael and Isaac and the way they came about as an allegory to demonstrate um, a particular concept in what he's trying to teach the Galatians. So, but he who was of the bondwoman, okay, Hagar, was born after the flesh or was born according to the flesh. Remember, the flesh is the old way of thinking. It's an old way of thinking. So I could rephrase that accurately and say, he was, the, he was born to the bondwoman, he was born to Hagar, who was born in man's way. In the natural man's way. But he of the free woman, he, Isaac, being born of Sarah, was by the promise. So I'm going to give Abraham credit here and say, could it be that, yes, Sarah suggests, hey, why don't you have a child with my maidservant? And that's probably how it's going to get done. That's probably what God has in store. 
That's probably what he wants us to do. And more than likely, they didn't consult God at all. They didn't wait for him. And I can totally relate to that ourselves when we do the Lord's work in our own strength rather than in God's strength or our way instead of his way. Have a read of Galatians chapter 4 this week and, and see what conclusion you come up with. And therefore, let's go into the conclusion in our last um, few verses. Therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Okay, remember going back to the theme, finishing chapter 4. Therefore, it was imputed. This imputed word, I haven't said this yet, but this is actually a banking term. This is where um, uh, your version might say credited or accounted for. But I struggle with the banking term because I think of a bank account and the bank account, our bank account is all righteousness. But when I think of a bank account, I think of going down and up with the dollars signs, right? Whereas, remember, it stays maximum, the limit, max. And that is all the way up the top. But imputed is a good word that we should all be familiar with. We're imputed. Um, God has imputed his righteousness to us. He's credited it to us. Now, it was not written for his sake alone, and this is the good news that we can apply to ourselves, that it was imputed to him. Not for his sake, not only to him, but for us also. To whom it shall be imputed if, obviously the if clause, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offences or our transgressions and was raised again for our justification. The good news, this is the gospel. God raised Jesus up from the dead who had died for our transgressions to take away our sin, to be the one-time perfect offering who would make us perfect forever, Hebrews 10, 14. How are we justified? How are we made righteous? Is it by the law? Is it by grace? Or is it by both? I hope you can say grace alone. But the question that has to come up in your mind, is Christ enough for you? The reason I ask this question is because I think, I'm a thinker, I analyze about the world, and I just think about particular people. And who's someone I haven't picked on for a while? A Seventh-day Adventist. Sometimes I think about Seventh-day Adventists because they demand that we worship on a Saturday, that we keep the Sabbath, a law, that we keep that law. Now, here's, here's the thing that goes through my mind. They believe in grace. They believe that Jesus Christ died for them and that he rose again for the third day and that whoever calls upon his name will be saved. But my question is, if they also believe that you have to worship Christ on a Saturday, the question I ask myself is, do they still believe 
that they're justified by grace? Do they still believe that faith, the faith is what justifies them? Because if they're saying, no, I have to worship Christ on a Saturday. If I don't, then I will go to hell. So if they believe that, and I'm not saying every single Seventh-day Adventist believes that, by the way. I'm just saying if, if they believe that, then my question for them would be, well, do you, are you counting on your righteousness by faith alone? And therefore, I'm asking myself, well, if they're not, if they're still doing both, then, well, are they saved? Are they counting on Jesus? Is Christ enough for them? And you can relate to that to any person. The Catholics, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, but I still have to be baptized, whether it's as an infant or later on, and by a particular person, does their faith still uphold even though they rely on this? If they rely on this, doesn't that cancel the faith out? That's my question. I'd love to have a discussion with you over it, on your thoughts over lunch. I'm just wondering, because I ask, you know, well, they, they still believe in Jesus. And you, get, you see where I'm coming from. So, ask yourself that question. Is Christ enough? Or do you still believe that, no, there's something that you still have to do? You still have to do something. And the answer definitely is an absolutely resounding no. It's by faith alone. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your eternal goodness to us all. We thank you that it's got nothing to do with us of being made right with you. We thank you it's all from what Christ has done on the cross. That it's finished and nothing can be added to it. So we just asked if there's anyone in, their room, in this room that's trying to add to it. Just pray that your spirit will instill in that, that truth, that is by faith and faith alone that we are saved. We want to rejoice in that truth this morning. Thank you, Lord God, that you have saved us. We just want to take this time just to reflect on maybe this week the one we've gone through or the week that's coming, whether there's a situation that we're going to be distracted or tempted to be distracted with, where it takes the focus of you or where it involves using our own strength rather than your strength. We just pray that you'll just lay that on our minds and help us be that person that you want us to be, to do those things that you want us to do, to rely on you for everything that we need. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.